invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians to chapter 4, New Testament epistle of Paul, to Philippians chapter 4. So we have been working our way through this series on the thought life of disciples, and we have come just in the past two weeks, finally, to Philippians chapter 4, which will be the central passage for the next several weeks. And last week, we focused primarily on our duty and the relationship that duty has to peace, that our duty consists in dwelling, thinking upon certain things. We saw that means careful thought, not just flighty thought, happenstantial thought, but careful dwelling or consideration of things. And then also it involves imitation. You are not thinking the way the Lord has called you to think if your desire is not to put it into practice to imitate the Lord and those who most reflect the characteristics described in our passage. And this in turn leads to the peace of God. Now this evening we come to focus on the first of six adjectives in the passage on truth. Let's give attention then to the word verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There is no power in us to bring about a spiritual effect from this sermon. And so we ask that even as we give attention to what you have revealed in your word, that you would be working in us the response that you desire in order that you would be honored and that we might participate more and more in the image of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. As a boy, I was particularly interested in mechanical things. I imagine it had something to do with some of the toys that my parents bought me. The fact that my dad was an engineer was certainly an influence. And early on, I remember learning about an ancient Greek man named Archimedes. Archimedes was an engineer's engineer, and he was an inventor of many things, some of which are still with us today. He's also known for a very famous saying. He said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum in which to place it, and I will move the world. If I just have a fixed point, then I can gain leverage and I can move great things. That's quite a boast. A fulcrum is a fixed point an unmovable point. Truth is the fulcrum by which faith has historically moved mountains. A faith which is not founded on truth is wishful thinking. Our faith has value, not in itself, but insofar as it lays hold of that which is true. This is why we don't have faith in faith. We have faith that God is faithful, 
that God has revealed certain things to be true. The aim of this evening is to look at what the apostle means by whatever is true. And that will be our first main idea. But then out of that, to try to identify several different sources or examples of truth from which you can draw substance for your meditation and imitation. It's one thing to keep it abstract, what is truth? It's a different thing to say, what do I need to actually look at to pattern my life upon? And then third, by way of conclusion, we're going to reflect very practically, what does it look like? And maybe are there some ways that we can go about this more effectively? So these are the general ideas before us this evening. Before we come to any of those, however, I invite you to return in your mind or maybe for the first time be introduced to an exchange, a conversation that took place in the hours immediately before Jesus was crucified. This occurs in John chapter 18. Jesus is speaking with a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. They're having a discussion, and Pontius Pilate is making a decision whether or not to accede to the demands of the Jews to crucify Jesus. And this is what is said in verse 36 of John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Most commentators believe that Pilate's response is spoken with an air of cynicism, of doubt, if not despair, that it can be known. What is truth? Here is a veteran politician. What is truth anyway? I recognize power. But who can know some of these things, and what does it even mean? But Jesus, on the other hand, unabashedly asserts that there is truth and that it is knowable. We can never forget that. Some of the people who profess to be Christians and advocates of Christianity themselves would diminish your hope that there is truth and it is knowable. That is just to remove Christ from the picture. Because this is the very purpose for which he came. It is our hope that things can be known, that which is essential. And so what does Philippians 4.8 have in mind when it says that God's will for you is to think on whatever is true? What is the true thing there? This is our first main idea. I want to be clear And I don't mind underscoring something which should be obvious. This is safe for us, especially as we have young ones with us. When the Bible speaks of truth, it certainly means something more than what is popular now. To speak of your truth and my truth. That each person has their own truth. Now I want to acknowledge something as well. The reason people are 
at times saying my truth in some instances comes from a legitimate place that we would harm ourselves to ignore. People who feel that their voice has not been heard, that they have been pushed to the sidelines in questions of power and law. That has to be heard and understood. But on the other hand, if all that there is is your truth and my truth, a subjective interpretation, a personal take, your own story, that doesn't give you a fulcrum. Certainly not a fixed point from which a society can build and form a way of living that has meaning. There has to be something fixed in order for other things to have actual value and not just subjective value to human beings. Hear this statement. Not a Christian who said it. Try to guess when it was said. We know today that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that everything is relative, that everything is dependent on the conditions of time and place. It sounds like something that could have been written today. If it were shorter, it would have been tweeted. This is the moment we live in, is it not? And yet, that is from a philosopher in 1891, a Marxist, And that's the way ideas work. They tend to trickle down from some academic top down. And it takes time. But the world that we are living in, many of the things that are taken for granted, especially among the peers of the youth, have not always been believed. But if I had the opportunity to speak to this person, I'd want to ask that philosopher some questions. Again, hear what he says. We know today that there is no such thing as absolute truth. How? Are you absolutely certain of that claim? That there is no absolute truth? And the fact that he says everything is relative, everything is dependent on the conditions of time and place. At this point, Christians say, wait, you've left out an important category, God God who is eternal and therefore not bound by time. God who is spirit and therefore not bound by place. The Christian cannot see the point. We, in wrestling with the world, do not step off the rock that we stand on, even as we seek to speak with them about the reasonableness of faith. We stand on this rock. There is truth because there is God. Every bit of truth must be understood relative to who God is because he doesn't change and he knows all. Objectively speaking, you might call the true in this way. You might describe it in this way. Things as they are really infallibly known to God. What is truth? Pilate, had Jesus given him more answers, might have heard that. Things as they really, infallibly, are known to God. What relief that is in a society where so many people struggle with various forms of mental illness. I have family, my own family, people who struggle with schizophrenia. And they at times wonder, what what is the reality of what's going on here? And though in this fallen condition... 
There are tragedies of the mind and of the body and of the soul, yet it is a comfort to those who believe to know God knows the reality of what is going on here and his promises are faithful. You don't know if that person is there or not there, but he does. What a comfort that is to the person increasingly in our society as for a whole variety of reasons that this sermon cannot trace out. There is a reason why now of all times, so many people are beginning to question, in spite of all tangible evidences, whether they are man or woman. That didn't fall out of the sky, and it's not just because now it's allowed. No. We live in a time of impermanence, where you move from one set of ideas to another in the workplace, in the school, in the home, among your friends... And because everyone is on a different page about beliefs, no one speaks of their beliefs, and nothing feels tethered to anything. Novelty wins the day. Technology drives us, one after another thing, to just make choice upon choice. And people do not feel that they can form an identity. And yet, when we come to Scripture, we find that God does know. Whether I am man or woman, God knows. And moreover, the Bible lays a framework to come at reality, to say that he's created the world in such a way that truth is, by and large, as it seems. We never find in Scripture that persons have to wrestle with that question the way it is currently. But truth is, by and large, as it seems. And that is a great comfort to the person who wrestles. How can I know God's will for me? Truth must stand foremost relative to God. Subjectively, you might define truthfulness in this way. Truthfulness is the degree to which creaturely knowledge conforms to divine knowledge. The degree to which creaturely knowledge conforms to divine knowledge. So somebody says, well, this is my truth. If your truth is at odds with God's truth, your truth is false. Sure, it's yours. But it does say in the word that many people love a lie. All of these things have to be turned back upon ourselves as well. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says, Let God be true even though everyone else were a liar. As it is written, that you, Lord, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Man tries to judge God all the time. But Lord, no. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. But we cannot reduce truth simply to thinking about facts, bare facts in a matter. I want you to think for a moment about why facts of themselves are not all that truth is. You have an entire genre of literature and film called true crime. True crime, and as much as It is possible authors in the genre try to be faithful to the facts. But when Paul says, think on that which is true, this is not license, let alone an obligation, to give special thought to every fact equally. There are some facts about which we are told to be innocent as babes. Truth is not reducible simply to bare facts, at least not when the Bible engages this concept. I want to invite you to turn and look at John chapter 3. You'll see an important aspect of this in what Jesus says in John 3.
Here in this passage, Jesus is speaking with a learned man, Nicodemus, one of the rulers among the Jews. And he reveals, Jesus reveals an important component of the true. Verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Now here, of course, by light and darkness, he does not mean in the sense that we observe it with our eyes, photons moving through space. He's speaking in a moral sense, in a spiritual sense, in a true and false sense. Truth has come into the world, and people loved that which is false rather than the truth because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, several points here. One, we believe that this power to do the truth and come to the light is a gift of the Lord. By nature, no one of us would do it. We would all hide from the light. But grasp here that to do the truth is not simply to know facts. What does it mean to do the truth in comparison with a person who loves the darkness? It means to stand in a position of submissive willingness to be exposed by the light, to relate to truth in such a way that you desire, even to your own peril, your own existential realization, I am a sinner, to be exposed by the truth. And so it means to be in a posture of spiritual sincerity before God. This is what is meant by the old Latin phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And for that reason, a person who is not willing to be radically exposed by the truth can never truly know it. It is always a danger, and increasingly so in our society, to want to separate facts from that spiritual component. More and more, I am persuaded this is one of the great challenges of our age, to discipline our minds to unify the presence of God with every fact we encounter. I am not saying that's easy. I am persuaded it takes years, decades, or maybe a lifetime to significantly advance. But this is necessary. You take one of any trillions of facts, the fact that all snakes, I learned recently, all snakes pass through a phase in shedding their scales where their eyes are blue. I did not know this. It's an interesting fact. And it's so tempting. You know, I'm subscribed to several different podcasts that just consist of random facts. That's me. But it's so tempting to just hold those things and not relate them to the Lord, not to ask the question, why, O oh Lord, have you done this? This is your world. Or at minimum, to thank him and to be in a posture of looking at the world with the Lord who made it. Conversely, the world thinks in a way that actively suppresses that element of God's presence. 
And they do it in very obvious ways. The fact that, again, so much could be said. The movies that have fine morals, but God is never mentioned. It is teaching your kids something, and mine too, that you can have morals without having to have the Lord at the bottom of it. And layer upon layer, layer upon layer, the whole network, the system that we dwell in, is itself undermining much of what we believe. And it's intended to. It is intended to. Whether or not each individual who participates in it is aware, this is the enemy's strategy. It's not that the truth is false, but it becomes implausible. The truth becomes implausible. When the children of Israel were in Babylon, it seemed implausible to believe that God was on their side. But the truth hadn't changed in any way. In our current context, it does become harder. I invite you to turn with me and look at a passage in Romans 1. I'd love for you to see it with your own eyes because it's fairly extensive and it's very important. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. What I'm about to say, I do not say to shame you, at least not in the sense of one who would beat the sheep. I love every one of you. But I'm also not ignorant to the fact that in a group of this size, there are inevitably some people, sometimes more people than we would expect, who go weeks or even months without actually handling their Bible in a meaningful way. And they are strangers to most of the truth, and much, if not all, of the word that they get, they get on Sunday. I rarely read a long passage in the context of a sermon. It's certainly not wrong to do so, however. I want you to hear this because it's so important, especially for the youth among us. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, not by their lack of intellect, but by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So much could be said there. But there is the word of God and a principle that truth is not something that people can approach in an unbiased way. It is spiritually formed. And for that reason, when we are told to think on whatever is true, it is especially to think upon it as it manifests through the character, through the lives of those who love the Lord. Especially as it manifests in the word and never simply as bare facts in the world. This brings us to our second, our final of the main points. Where do we find this truth? Where do we go to actually find ways to meditate and then ways to imitate? And I want to lay before you three in particular. I don't ask you to turn to Psalm 19. I know it's familiar to some of you and it's a very short passage. But Psalm 19 draws our attention to creation. And we should not let that go. Sometimes Christians have been guilty of this. They're so fed up with aspects of the world that they turn away from learning what God has put in creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Not simply because they're pretty. But the more we learn about the heavens, about physics in general, the more we realize we don't know and cannot know. That it's an amazing, powerful act of God to sustain this world. And in a multitude of other ways, he's spoken in creation. Think of Jesus saying, behold the lilies. Look at the birds. Solomon saying, go to the ant. All around us, the Lord has placed truth if we will look for it. But on the other hand, there is a danger here, and the danger has nothing to do with the creation in itself, but with ourselves, the interpreters, that we sometimes interpret wrongly. And therefore, we have an even more sure word, which is special revelation given to us in the scriptures and the Old and New Testament. The same psalm goes on to say in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Think about that stack. You want that on your plate in the morning. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, Enduring, true, righteous. 
And this is what we find for us in the word. And yet, how often is the case that we neglect the word and seek truth outside of it? Now, I would never tell you don't read books or else the rocks that would come back at me, I do. But we read them to understand the word. And the word remains the core of our reading. It's so easy for that to flip. Even as we pick up other things to help us, it is to understand the word. John 17, verse 17, Jesus echoes this. He says to his father, praying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And yet in John's gospel, that's interesting and significant for Jesus to say your word is truth because John over and over again identifies Jesus as the word, the word made flesh. And so the third source that we go to above others is Christ, who is the one that we meditate upon supremely, who is the one that we imitate foremost. And so this is then to consider his person, his work, and his words. John chapter 1, verse 17, hear what it says and notice one phrase in particular, full of grace and truth. It says, John 1, 17, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And then he makes a contrast, and this has been a point of confusion for many people. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I thought the law was gracious. And it was given to God's covenant people as part of the administration of the covenant of grace. And yet here it says that the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. And I thought the law was true. Psalm 19. But here, truth came through Jesus. Moses was able to reveal the demands of God and certain promises, but he could not give us the heart to desire to live according to them. He could not, through the law, pay for our sins. He could not fulfill the promises. But the grace to walk in the truth, to dare to be exposed by God's will, to tread in the light, that comes through Jesus Christ, through knowing him. The more you know him, the more you are aligned to him as the truth, the more you will be able to do the truth, and to be conformed not to this world and its claims about veracity, but to his own. By way of conclusion, I mentioned to you at the outset, I wanted to lay before you a few simple ways to do this perhaps a little bit more effectively. In the first place, I want to encourage, especially in the families here, but it applies to all, diligently cultivate inquisitiveness about creation. Even taking time, perhaps, to go with your children. Just this week, I learned that my parents-in-law brought my own kids to an aquarium, and my wonderful parents-in-law made a point to speak with them about the Lord along the way. And to point, oh, look what God made here, and isn't that beautiful? But to set it in the context of the Lord, to observe with God what God has made. In history, one of the major figures of church history, Anselm, was famous for saying that faith 
seeks understanding, that we start from faith, but we seek understanding. And to cultivate this in the home, not one, not a mindset that shuts out inquisitiveness about creation, though there's so much that we don't understand, but one that draws us into it. Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. This is thinking with the Lord. And parents need to model this for their children. To break the barrier of feeling uncomfortable about praying or disclosing that we think about the Lord in this way. Especially fathers. You set the tone in your home for spirituality. You help the children experience in a plausible way that God is present. If he's not present on your lips, it is hard to fault your kids when they feel like maybe he's not here. God uses means, and one of the means is by that layering of plausibility structures, the church, the home, the family, the community. These together he uses. Second, I encourage you in your meditations upon the word to become more regular and more systematic. More regular and more systematic. Not simply to open the Bible and to read some small passage here or there, though I will take anything over nothing. But brothers and sisters, you live in such a privileged society in terms of time that most of us who overwork do so by choice. Not all. Most of us do find time, and I know most of you well enough. We do find time for at least a couple of hours each week for a whole variety of entertainments. And you say, but coming to the word in that way, that systematic way, is not relaxing. One, I am not claiming that it will be. (laughs) Two, the Lord's day is set aside for this purpose. And we ought to find, I encourage you, whether together as a family or individually, at minimum, half an hour, better an hour, every Lord's day, learn the system of doctrine that we believe. Start with the catechism. Or I would challenge you teens. It is my, I'm persuaded of this. Every single teen by age 16 should know the Belgian Confession frontwards and backwards. You say, I don't know. Just read it. It's actually not that hard. It's not. 36 articles, 36 days in a row. If you read just one, you could say, well, I've done it. And then you could circle back and do, you know, a few a, a month. But this is the time, you youth, to lay a foundation. If you think you're going to have more time later, you're not. You're not. Your time goes like this as you get older. Your life gets shorter and your time gets smaller. This is the time. Dig in. Lay a foundation so that when the waves come against it, as inevitably they will, the enemy wants you to feel there is no way to know truth. You will have something to stand on, a fulcrum from which your faith can move. I want to encourage you, and I realize that this is not needed by most here, but I'll still say it. Education that specifically approaches all topics from the vantage of the Lord our God and Jesus Christ is essential. If you say that you cannot do that because you can't afford it, I will chip in and so will everyone else. This church has never once, to my knowledge, allowed anyone to fall into the position that they could not have the education they desired for their child because of money. We will back it forever. 
because it's so essential that children learn not just math, but that the Lord built the world in such a way in order that he might be glorified and that we would do all things in Christ's name. If you build a bridge as a Christian, you build it unto the glory of God for the good of your neighbor. There is no amoral activity in this whole world. None. And then finally, I encourage you, make Christ himself the core subject of your meditation all the day long. Always coming back. How has he lived? How does he live? What has he done for me? We come full circle then to what Jesus said in John 18, 37 to Pilate. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Brothers and sisters, listen to his voice. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us spinning like a broken compass in a dark room. You have given us a fixed point, a true north in Christ and in your word. And we praise you, Father, that your elect people by your Holy Spirit, have been magnetized to him. And we ask that you would please continually draw us back. We stray, we wander. Oh, Heavenly Father, fill us with your truth. For those who are perplexed, even this evening, full of doubts because of the ravages of our culture that makes it difficult to arrive at a clear understanding, because of sin that militates against submitting to and walking in the light or any other reason. Lord, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name that by your spirit you would strengthen them, take the clay feet, transform them. We ask that you clothe them like shoes in the gospel of peace. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would preserve in this pulpit and in this community, continually, your truth for your glory. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.